Dr. Ariane Nachat is a emergency medicine and palliative care physician, which to me was a surprising combination. So we start the discussion with why emergency medicine physicians are actually well-suited for palliative care. Most recently, she founded Pally, which brings together resources to educate, empower, and enable patients with life-altering illnesses to live their life to the fullest potential. Dr. Nishat currently practices emergency medicine and serves as clinical faculty at Balboa Naval Medical Center and the VA Medical Center in San Diego, California. She founded Kaiser's first inpatient integrative symptoms management service in Northern California, served on the state of Oregon Opiate Prescribing Task Force, and is an exam item writer for the American Board of Internal Medicine. The discussion mostly centered around a Twitter interaction from a few months prior where two male physicians were discussing why female physicians are burning out faster than men. So Dr. Nishat noted that a lot of salient issues had been neglected. So that's what the discussion today focused on and how institutions can address them, including on-site childcare. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Ariane Nashad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Looking forward to our chat. So before we get into the heart of the matter, the main reason that that I asked you to be on the show today, let's talk about your palliative business because you're an, you're an emergency medicine physician who is, has a palliative care startup. So how do you go from emergency medicine to palliative care? It's a great question. So palliative medicine, for those listening who aren't familiar with it, is a specialty where we work with patients who have a life-limiting or serious diagnosis while they're still in what's called a disease-modifying state. There's still something to do to change the behavior of their illness. And a lot of what we focus on in palliative medicine are what are their individual personal goals while they're going through this treatment with the understanding that some of those patients are not gonna recover and they're closer to the end of their life than the start of their life. So what is a question that every patient gets asked every time they come through the emergency room doors? What's your code status? And you can imagine that as an ER doc, I spend a lot of time resuscitating people and doing very invasive, fairly violent and traumatic things to people's bodies in order to sort of put significant scaffolding in place when they're significantly ill. And oh, so Dr. Nishat, sorry. This is a physician audience. So yeah. everyone so so the the listeners are, are familiar with what you guys do in the emergency department and not because we saw it on the uh on TV because we had not rotations as, as as medical students and sometimes you call us in the middle of the night to come see your patients. So so uh yeah so the audience is is somewhat familiar. Well, I will say that even folks who are in medicine still confuse palliative and hospice. So I clarify what palliative is because most of the times when I walk into the room or, or I come in as a consultant, people think I'm showing up with a shiv in a black cloak and I'm not. Um, so I actually think it's important to define the difference between palliative and hospice, even for our physician colleagues who sometimes aren't totally sure where that line in the sand is between the two. Um, but to answer your question specifically, I think ER docs make fantastic palliative care physicians because we know when we're intervening and it's unlikely to change the outcome. 
We know when it's unlikely to move the needle and where we're doing things to a human body that aren't really going to improve their quality of life. And so I started out as an ER physician. I then became a patient myself for a while uh, with an oncologic diagnosis. I transitioned from that to doing traditional Chinese medicine. And then I founded Kaiser Permanente's first inpatient integrative symptoms management service. And we took care of a very large swath of palliative patients. About 60 to 70% of our patients were, were palliative in nature. And so it sort of became this natural meandering trajectory. And I then also got pain trained. And my area of expertise is essentially palliative oncologic pain management. So when I'm not wearing my ER hat, which I still do, I work as, a, as an attending physician at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego and for the VA. I work there as an ER doc, but for Scripps Health in San Diego, I work as a palliative care physician who's embedded in the emergency department seeing palliative consults in the ED. Oh, wow. I did not know that that could be uh, a pairing. That's, it is. That's really interesting. And I think ER docs make really great palliative care physicians because of the work that we do. We really do know when, you know, doing CPR or intubating or putting in a central line or doing anything super invasive is likely to change the outcome. We've all taken care of those patients who have come through the ER and you're thinking to yourself, what am I doing here? You know, this is not going to help them. This is not going to improve their quality of life. And it might actually worsen their quality of life. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um Although I would think you'd be at a slight disadvantage because you don't have this established rapport, right? Like a, a primary care physician, they've known the patient for a while. They know the background. They know the family. They know their, uh, you know, they, they, they really, know, they have the benefit of, of an established relationship. Whereas in the emergency department, you're, you're coming in cold. I am. And it's a very unique skill set to do palliative in the ED specifically. Um, it's a fairly unique program we have at Scripps. Um, my colleague, David Wang, actually started that program there, and it's it's unique because of the fact that we are coming in at a moment of crisis, usually, where there isn't that rapport, and you have to be very quick to establish a relationship with the patient and their family and really help guide decision-making. And some of the consults really are that critical where someone's coming in and it's like, are we intubating? Are we not intubating? Are we resuscitating? Are we not? But a lot of the times, it's also someone who's just medically fragile and frail who's coming in for their third, fourth CHF exacerbation or COPD exacerbation or someone who is cognitively declining and who has mild dementia and it's gradually getting worse and they're coming in for the umpteenth time through the ER for whatever reason. It's a great opportunity to really say, hey, guys, have you ever thought about an advanced directive? Do you know what an advanced directive is? You know, even is. Um, and maybe we should talk about what your goals really are, because a lot of patients, if given the opportunity to talk about it, um, they, they really do open up and go, wow, I've never really thought about this. No one's ever asked me that question. No one's asked me if I would ever want to be on a ventilator in the ICU. And if you don't ask the question, then you don't get the answer. And then the patient doesn't have agency and control over what happens to them. And I think most patients regardless of where they are in their, you know, course, want agency and control over their path. I think as humans, that's inherent in our, in our nature. We want to have some control and being a patient is probably one of the biggest losses of autonomy that anyone can have. Oh yeah. Psychological reactance. You will make a decision against your own self-interest, even if you already made the decision to do that thing because somebody told you to do it. 
So that loss of control will cause you to do things that you uh, you otherwise wouldn't wouldn't do. So yeah, critical critical importance there. Um, but that that wasn't the main reason that we were gonna the main issue we're gonna discuss in the show today. The the reason yeah. I invited you on the show is because um, Z Dog Zubin Domanian and uh, Robert Pearl. Uh, did an episode on Pearl's podcast uh, that included why women physicians are burning out faster than men. And so mm -hmm. you replied to that um, on Twitter. And I thought you gave this very concise list of things that hadn't been discussed. And so I wanted to give you the platform to to discuss them. So, so, so why don't we just start with a more open-ended question of why you think women physicians are burning out faster than men? Well, I think many of our listeners are probably familiar with the, the concept of the third shift. Um, and if you're not, it's essentially, so you have your, your regular job, and then you have your family relationships and the such job as well. And then you have all the other things that you have to do to take care of everyone else around you. And so it, we're never off. You know, most women are our caregivers. They are caretakers, and it's just inherent in our society. About 80% of caregiving in this country is performed by women. So even if you just have a regular physician job, which unto itself is exhausting and is fraught with burnout, not because physicians are not the most resilient human beings I've ever met, but because we work in systems that are really not designed to support us as humans. You know, how many of us haven't gone to the bathroom, haven't eaten, haven't slept properly, haven't taken a true vacation, have come home from a shift and have continued charting. I mean, we don't leave our jobs at work and our jobs aren't designed to be conducive to us being human and humane to each other. So you take that and then you go home and you deal with all of the other things you're dealing with. So making dinner or the laundry or going shopping picking up kids, dropping off kids, et cetera, we never stop. And I think women in general tend to be very empathic. We internalize a lot of things. Um, and I think we get gaslit on a different level. It's invariable that I walk into a room in the ER and even though my you know, jacket says MD on it and my badge has a big, huge thing underneath it that says doctor and the first statement out of most patients' mouth is, hey, nurse, can I get a cup of whatever? So. We just deal with a very different psychological experience at work. We have a very different set of expectations at home. And then societally, we have a different set of expectations as to what we're supposed to do and not do. Um, you had also mentioned the frequency of single motherhood, right? Mm -hmm. How often there are single mothers practicing medicine as opposed to, you know, the number of single fathers out there that are that are taking care of the kids while while holding down a full-time career and so the, the increased burdens on them absolutely so i'm a single parent i have two young kids in the beginning of the covid pandemic i was working a full-time job and my kids were in full-time school well guess what the state of oregon at the time which is where i was living shut down all of the schools and now i had two young children at home who at the beginning of the pandemic were four and a half and seven. Um, and I had to either be at home and homeschool them, or I had to be at work and there was only one of me. So choices had to be made. And that was not an easy situation to be in because someone still had to pay the mortgage. It's not like my mortgage suddenly was going to go away and I could just be like, oh, sure, I'll just stay at home and I'll homeschool my children. 
Uh, not to mention that I'm a horrible teacher for my own children and I should never homeschool them. But, you know, within a week of trying that, all three of us were in tears. And I was like, this is just not tangible. I can't do this. Um, and so I left a full-time benefited position with health insurance because I could not work the schedule that they wanted me to work in the middle of a pandemic. And so I actually took a gig working for the Department of Defense down in San Diego, working for the Navy and for the VA because they were willing to be flexible and basically said, we're so desperate, give us whatever schedule you can do and we'll give it to you. And so I started flying down and working seven to nine, 12 hour shifts in a row. And then I'd fly home and play mom for the next three weeks. That's not a normal human response or schedule. I was working 120 hours in the span of under 10 days and flying in and out on the same days that I was working shifts. I don't know too many men who are doing that. I don't know too many men who are single parents, not to mention, not to say that there aren't, there definitely are single men out there who are parenting, but the proportion is, is minuscule compared to the number of women who are doing this. And so the expectations our society has that we should be able to fulfill all of the roles at all times and still be able to keep ourselves above water is, is an unrealistic expectation, frankly. And we don't have the support systems in place to support us. It's not like we have in-hospital childcare. You know, even when, when I wasn't dealing with a pandemic and I just had two young children under the age of five, you know, if you have a sick kid who can't go to school or your nanny calls out, we know that childcare is a huge problem. And then throw into that what happened during the pandemic. I can tell you that coming to work for an ER doctor in the middle of a worldwide pandemic for which at the time there was no vaccine, it's not like I had a line out the door of people volunteering to take care of my children. Yeah. 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 And then at that point, if they got the sniffles, now we're, we're you know, people are sending their kids to school with the sniffles again. But at that point, yeah. if one of them caught a cold from one of their friends or one of their siblings, uh, you know, you we weren't sending them back so quickly. And so now you're forced to find people to cover you and, you know, the acrobatics of uh, scheduling in, in the emergency department. Exactly. And I think we as as a community, as physicians, also have not historically been so kind to each other in terms of people taking time off. Um, you know, I know that when people used to call out, it was it was a big deal if someone called out for a shift. And we weren't always necessarily as magnanimous with our colleagues as we would have liked to have been, because we're also struggling to keep everything together. And so when we're short-staffed, it impacts the ER. If we have to come in on a day that we were expecting to have off, that's it's, it's a burden of some sort. So I do think that culturally, we, we've sort of decided that we can be professionals, but we're not allowed to have a personal life and be treated as though that is equally valuable. Um, and that shouldn't apply just to those of us who have children. I mean, I have single friends who also feel like, well, you know, my time off with my friends is just as important as someone who has a family. I've heard that argument as well. We, as a culture in the United States, value work more than we value community and more than we value um, the, the things that we really should care about. At the end of the day, our work is a job. Our job is important. We do things that are meaningful to society. But if we can't take care of ourselves and we can't take care of our families, we're not serving anyone well. Do you think that culture is changing? Do you think people are now, whether it was the pandemic or these these lazy millennials, I'm kidding, obviously, um, <laughs> that, that, are, that are changing the landscape of how we view work and because people are viewing it more as 
just a job than than your whole life, right? Are, are we seeing as many, you know, the, the older curmudgeon physicians who plunk themselves in the doctor's lounge and complain about everything long after they've retired? You know, I can't see our generation doing that. We're, we're, we're not working. We're gone. I think it is shifting, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think the only thing about it that is less than ideal is, is that I don't think we have a bench that's deep enough to cover the lack of people working. Um, you know, a lot of people, I can't remember the exact statistic, I think it was 20% of physicians have said they're leaving after the pandemic, that they're walking away from medicine. There's an enormous amount of investment that goes into making us into a physician. And it's not recoverable overnight when 20% of the workforce leaves. I think it's incumbent on the healthcare system at large to figure out how to give people a better quality of life so that they have more longevity and they have the ability to do their jobs for an extended period of time. I know that within emergency medicine specifically, our burnout rate is ridiculous. Um, also, applications to emergency medicine have gone down tremendously. Um, I think we had 277 open match spots this year, which is unheard of. You need another um, primetime TV show. Yeah. That'll seriously. pick things up. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, people don't want to be thrown to the wolves. And emergency medicine has definitely been on the front lines of being thrown to the wolves during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. um, certainly other specialties have experienced a lot as well. I'm not wanting to, to you know, say it's just us. It definitely isn't. Um, but when you look at the applications, when I applied for emergency medicine, there were two un unmatched spots for the entire country. To go from that to 277 unmatched spots, it's very telling. And it's very telling that the younger generation wants work-life balance. They want to feel valued. They want to feel respected. They want to feel appreciated. And frankly, I think that we all deserve that. Especially going through what we go through. Yeah, I mean, I think there has been a lot to damage the the role of physicians in our society in the United States. A, it, it's very unfortunate, but physicians, while we partially did it to ourselves by not maintaining a seat at the table, we're just like, oh, we just want a doctor. I don't want to deal with any of the business stuff. And we, and we handed that off to other people who are like, oh, I've got an MBA. Sure, I'm happy to do that. I'm an administrator. I want to do that. But we've handed off. And now we have a, a system that is not benefiting patients. It's not benefiting physicians. It's harming everyone who is actually involved in the delivery of care. If you see what's going on with the nursing shortages, with, with nurses who are, are literally walking away from the bedside and don't even want to go into direct nursing anymore. It's a huge problem and we need to figure out how to rein that back in. We need to figure out how to have a seat at the table to, you know, quote Hamilton, I want to be in the room where it happens. Physicians need to be back at the table in the room where it happens and decisions about how we deliver care need to be back in, in the minds and hands of those people who do the work and not people who are sitting outside and telling us how to actually deliver care. And, and that's a, a much bigger conversation. I don't know how deep we want to go into that, but, you know, we have jurists and legislators and politicians who are dictating medical care right now. Last I checked, they did not go to medical school. They do not have a license. They have 
absolutely zero training that qualifies them to make legislation or judicial decisions that dictate medical care. They don't know what they're talking about. I had an episode a long time ago where, where we were talking about uh, leadership. And, you know, my question was, but I am, uh, you know, as you illustrated, you're a, a single mother of, of two young children and a full-time emergency medicine physician, and you've got a palliative care position. Where do you have the time for leadership? And that was my question. And the answer was, well, if you don't do it, someone else is. And so I think mm -hmm. to your point, any time we have an opportunity to take a leadership position where it is something that we are passionate about, even if you don't feel qualified to do it, because I bet you you're more qualified than the non-physician to do it. Um, you know, yeah. take that take that leadership opportunity because this is how we we take uh, leadership back and don't be so quick to abdicate it. But but let's go back to discussing um, women physicians specific you know um, burnout and one thing's you didn't you don't like the word burnout. I hate the word burnout. I think the word burnout implies that somehow it's something that I've done wrong. I'm not burning out. The system is causing me to have moral injury. Um, I, I really dislike the term burnout. It, it somehow places the blame on the individual who is struggling to, to function. Yeah, if you weren't more resilient, if you were just more resilient, then you wouldn't burn out. Yeah, I, I can't remember. I think it was Gavin um, on Twitter. Um, right now, his last name is escaping me, but he, he had written a tweet about healthcare is the only industry where when the canary in the coal mine dies, we ask, why can't we get more resilient canaries? <laughs> and and it, it really resonated with me when I, when I read that, because it is so true. We are some of the most resilient human beings out there. We spend decades in training and in school and not sleeping and not eating and ignoring our bodies. If we are the ones who are saying, uncle, this isn't working, the answer isn't another wellness module. It's not telling me how to prioritize my EMR inbox. It means that we're not doing this correctly and we need to change the system so that physicians can actually do their job in a way that is meaningful and impactful. We, I can't remember which study I was reading, but of a 15 minute primary care visit, um, seven or eight minutes of that visit are entirely dedicated to EMR click boxing so that we meet whatever is required from a regulatory billing MIPS and value-based care yeah. and yeah all of that and yes. you know what patients care about and you know what i care about none of that i realize that obviously as as an entrepreneur now and as someone who's building a company return on investment matters and you obviously need to be able to to pay the bills you know no money no mission is is sort of the going phrase within the entrepreneurial world but when you look at the graphs right now of, of the growth of physicians, and this is all over the internet, people can just Google this, you know, growth of physicians versus administrators. And you look at the graph and the line for, for the physician growth is just this very narrow, thin line in terms of its expansion. And then you look at the administrator side of the graph and it goes like that. Most of our healthcare dollars are not being spent on delivering the actual care to patients by physicians period. And yet we're getting blamed for the fact that patients are not getting what they feel they need and want and frankly deserve, which is time with us and our expertise. Our expertise has been diminished. Um, our value within the healthcare system has been diminished. Um, and even just our replaced. attention. 
you know, yeah. it takes away from the therapeutic relationship. Even if, even if you're giving them the same, same antibiotic, you can improve the outcome mm -hmm. even more with more attention. So they need not just their expertise, but also more, you know, and because we're focused so much on moving on to the next patient, billing, coding, charting, we're, we're, it takes away from from your the attention that you're you're giving to them, which affects their outcomes. Because if they feel more of your attention, then they tend to do better. And they also are able to share with you more. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when I sit down with a patient because I have the luxury of time when I'm in my palliative care role, where I can sit down with a patient for an hour and just talk to them, which I don't know any other specialty that gets to do that other than psychiatry these days. Um, and even then, it's a 50-minute hour. Um, patients tell me things that they've never shared with other physicians who've been taking care of them for years because they don't have the same kind of time. They're not constrained in the same way. Um, and it, it hurts me viscerally when, you know, I have a stage 4 pancreatic cancer patient talking to me and no one has had a conversation about goals of care. Oh. I'm like, how do you get to be a stage four cancer patient? And no one has thought to sit down and go, hey, listen, this is really serious. And you're not getting out of this alive. And we should probably talk, even though we're doing treatment. When do we stop treatment? How do you want to handle that? What do you Although, want to share? In defense of our colleagues, I have mm -hmm. encountered many patients, not with pancreatic cancer. I'm an otolaryngologist, but in similar situations, and it seems like you're the first one having this conversation with them. And then you talk to their oncologist, you talk mm -hmm. to their radiation oncologist, and they've had those conversations. Mm -hmm. They've just, maybe they weren't the right time. Maybe they didn't stick. Maybe, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I'm not saying the those, conversations that, aren't that, happening. That certainly happened, yeah. I'm not saying conversations aren't happening, but when you are constrained by a 30-patient clinic, and, you know, you don't have the ability to just stop the clock and sit there and say, what's on your mind? Patients also don't share what they're worried about and they don't share what their concerns always are because they're afraid, they don't want to impose, they didn't think about it in that moment. It's not all on the clinicians. It's, it's also about the patients, but the function of all of it is time. You know, the more time you can sit down and, and actually hold someone's hand and, and talk to them, you know, person to person, human to human. It's a very different experience. You know, doctoring today is different than when I started out, which is going to date me now, but I've been in practice. This is my 21st year. Doctoring today is different from 20 years ago and from conversations I've had with colleagues who are older than, than I am and you and I are. This is very different from the patient-doctor relationship that existed 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago. So it sounds like if we increase our numbers, right? More physicians equals more time because, you know, you can't fit, if you're fitting fewer patients in per day, then that's a longer wait time to get in. So it's a paradox, right? They want to get in in a timely manner, but they also want and need more of our time and our attention. So the only way would be increasing the workforce. So either you're going to create more physicians, which I don't think is an unreasonable thing to do, or scope creep right right you the exact uh, advanced um practitioners the their nurse practitioners and the physician's assistants you know you give them more responsibilities so 
you know, we've got to do, it sounds like the only answer to that is, is one of those two things. Or maybe maybe a bit of both. I don't I don't have those answers, and I think this is getting a little a little more in depth than 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 I wanted to about this topic because I, I really wanted to focus more specifically on, on women physicians. And and one thing that you had mentioned was uh, childcare. Childcare at the hospital does not sound like an unreasonable. These are huge institutions with huge amounts of money and huge infrastructure, it would not be hard for them to provide childcare. They right. own blocks and blocks of some of the most expensive real estate in the country <laughs> to create some childcare for their staff. Seems like it would go a long way, especially towards, I mean, just in their own self-interest, retention, employee retention. Oh, if I leave this job, I'm going to lose my child care. Like, <laughs> right? Golden handcuffs. The golden I mean, handcuffs. Yeah. You got to speak I mean, their language, though. You got to speak their language if you're going to get what you want. And so you incentivize them in the right way and uh, and, and they can make it happen. So so that seems like a, a great idea. Any, any other ideas for how we can better support um, our women physician colleagues? Sure. I think that modifying schedules based on where you are phase of life wise in terms of women, um, you know, I, I can tell you that working night shifts as a pregnant 32 week mom in the ER, um, not a great plan. Um, you know, providing meals, providing resources so that when you are at work, you actually do take a break and you eat something. Um, one of the, the, hospitals I work for now, there is a physician's lounge and they make sure that it's stocked three times a day with three meals worth of, of food so that a physician can just walk in there and grab something to eat and not go the whole day and not eat. Um, you know, giving women in particular who are either pregnant or lactating or recently postpartum the ability to morph their schedules, to decrease their, their FTE, to accommodate those changes in their life. Uh, giving women the ability to take time off after delivering um, or adopting to to be able to take, you know, a full three to six months off. The, the physical changes that a woman experiences related to pregnancy and childbirth are no joke. And I think that the expectation, and especially of our younger, uh, more junior colleagues who are in training. So residents, for example, they have to get X number of weeks worth of, of uh you know, rotations in, in order to graduate, how do you manage that when you have someone who just had a baby? You know, they, they need the time off. They're working a grueling schedule. We know that women who are in medicine have higher miscarriage rates, more infertility. Um, there are lots of reasons behind it, but some of it has to do with our circadian rhythms, our scheduling, delaying having children. There are so many elements to that that don't get addressed when we are training our young women physicians, when we're supporting them going through life changes such as that. And I think that if institutionally it just was standard, you are pregnant, you get taken off of night shift after your second trimester, period. You just don't get to do that shift anymore. You don't get to work clinically standing on your feet for 12 hours a day in the last few months. We're going to modify your schedule to something that's more light duty oriented. Now, granted, I realize that there are some women who may opt not to take advantage of those changes and who may still want to work all the way till the end and who may not uh, feel like they should have to modify because of it. 
But the reality is, is a lot of women won't even ask because they know it's frowned upon or that it will be perceived poorly. If the standard is to get this and you still choose to work beyond that, that's fine. But at least it doesn't make them have to ask for it. Um, having locations within the hospital for lactating moms to pump, for example, I remember literally pumping in an ER room with putting a piece of eight by 11 paper taped onto the window for that room so that I could pump after I delivered my first child. That's ridiculous. That's not really fair. It puts everyone in an awkward position. Someone walks in unexpectedly, you're sitting there with your pumping equipment. It, it's just not cool. Those are all great ideas and they sound very doable as long as we have the, the physician power to be able to support those things, which gets back to our earlier issue, right? We need to, we need, we need to expand the workforce in order to make that happen. And hospital systems need to acknowledge that expanding the workforce by replacing us with non-physician work power is not the same thing. And, and I think that's where we in this country have have shifted sort of the value of what we believe physicians bring to the table. Everyone can now supposedly do my job. And I don't think that's a true statement. I think everyone within their scope of practice should be able to do an enormous amount to the maximum of their scope of practice. But what that scope of practice is sure has been morphing in the last decade or so. So where is the erosion of trust coming from? I think it's systemic. I really do. I think it's systemic. I think it's political. I think it's financial. I think that insurance companies have figured out that they can eke out more dollars, you know, saved or money, you know, uh, profited by using less expensive workforce. It's certainly been the case in emergency medicine. In emergency medicine, we've had a huge influx of private equity and entire ERs have had physician workforce replaced with mid-levels. Um, and I don't think it necessarily serves the patients better, but sure helps the bottom line for the private equity company when they're paying half the salary. For the and private the physician... equity, but but then you don't necessarily get as good outcomes. So it costs the health system more. And the health system is subsidized by the taxpayers. And so ultimately, the money from the taxpayers is going into private equity's pocket. They've found a way like that's how they're, that's how they're making the money is because they're, they're decreasing their, their costs. And yet the patients are still coming through at the same pace. And so, you know, the, the revenue is the same or similar and the costs are lower. And so they're making the money, but the patients are arguably not doing as well. And the liability is falling to the physicians who are having to co-sign those charts by contract, whether yeah. they've seen them or not they're still the ones holding the bag. So it's not the private equity that's on the hook. It's not the hospital system that's on the hook. It's the physician who's actually being mandated to supervise that care, which oftentimes they can't physically actually do the care at the level that you know would warrant them putting their signature on that chart. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong. I've worked with phenomenal PAs and NPs over the year. I mean, phenomenal. People who I would trust to take care of me. But what was always guiding principle in those relationships and those relationships being successful was their recognition of knowing what they don't know and when to ask for help. And I think there's been an entire generation, right? Right. Yeah. But I think there's been an entire generation that has been told, Oh no, you can do exactly what they do. You don't need to go to medical school. You don't or need to better. go to residency. Yeah. yeah. Or you're yeah. better, or even better at it. 
and that is where that erosion of the of the physician patient relationship really has gone off the rails. Um, you know, insurance companies they don't care about the relationship that the physician and the patient have. They care about you know getting their premiums, paying the least amount of money out, um, and having whoever see their patient so that they can do that. Um, their ability to practice medicine without a license is mind blowing to me. And I don't know why it's accepted. It varies state per state, you know, every, every state has different rules and every like licensing requirements and practice abilities and scope of practice. It's all, yeah, it's, it's just, it's such a, it's such a hodgepodge. But before we go one more, one more question. Sure. Do women make better physicians? So I'm probably going to piss people off by saying this, but I'm going to say yes. And I think the data actually supports that. I believe there was a study that was done that looked at outcomes. And I think it was specifically looking at female hospitalists. And they spent more time with patients. Patients had better outcomes in general, and their satisfaction scores were higher. I don't think it's a function of us being women. I really don't. But I do think we tend to take more time. I do think we tend to slow down to our own detriment sometimes um, in terms of our metrics. Um, But I think we do make excellent clinicians. But I've also worked with a lot of men who are phenomenal physicians. So no, I just mean on average, just mean like statement. the median, the mean, you know, and, and but but to your point, like that's that also I got from that um that uh Twitter thread that you put out there uh with that reference on it, that there is data there is data to support it. So it, it, yeah, not ever just like nurse practitioners and physicians assistants, some of them are phenomenal and some of them are not. Doctors, yeah. some phenomenal, some not. Some women are better than men, some men are better than women, but the data does seem to support that uh, that women physicians have better outcomes. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. Where can people find you online? So you can find me on Twitter under Ariana Shot MD. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. You can find me at my company Pality. So www.pality.com. Um, I welcome questions. I welcome conversation. Always happy to find more like-minded folks who want to change the healthcare system for the better and who want to support the physician patient relationship coming back to center stage. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Brad. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.